Hi, my name is David Elstein, and this is the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery podcast. Each episode is designed to help busy orthopedic surgeons learn more about the ABUS and board certification. This episode is slightly different. It is the audio recording of the webinar on the ABUS Part 2 examination. You will hear from Dr. David Martin, ABUS Executive Director. More information on the ABUS Part 2 examination can be found on www.abus.org. If you enjoy this episode of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery podcast, please subscribe to us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you know no next episode is posted. My name is David Martin. I'm the Executive Director at the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, and I'm joined tonight by Kyle Jurey, who is the Chair of the ABOS Oral Examination Committee, and Mike Bednar, who is the Associate Executive Director, and then we're joined by Denise Frazier, who is a manager at the ABOS of uh, certification and credentialing, uh, David Elstein, who is our manager of communications, and Kristen Kaba, who is a manager uh, in the area of examinations. So what we'll cover tonight is what you need to know before applying for the 2025 ABOS Part 2 oral examination. So I'd like to start by going over the ABOS mission statement. Our mission is to ensure the safe, ethical, and effective practice of orthopedic surgery. We do that by maintaining the highest standards for education, practice, and conduct. And we do that through examination, certification, and maintenance of certification for the benefit of the public. I'd also like to cover one of our important guiding principles. The ABOS believes that there is no place for bias or discrimination within the field of orthopedic surgery or within our organization. And we go to great lengths to try and ensure that we adhere to that principle. I'd also like to introduce you to our American Board of Orthopedic Surgery Board of Directors. This is our board of directors at our recent fall meeting. I'll show you this slide for a couple reasons. Number one, to let you know that this is a dedicated group of orthopedic surgeons. They are interested in getting all of our programs and processes right. I also show you this to let you know that this is a group of practicing orthopedic surgeons. This is their initial certification dates and recertification dates along with subspecialty certification in either sports medicine or surgery of the hand. I'll let you know that each of these individuals is a practicing orthopedic surgeon who goes through the same processes as you and I to become board certified. So let's go through an overview of what we'll cover tonight. We'll talk about this board certification requirements, specifically the requirements to sit for the Part 2 oral examination, which is the end point of becoming board certified. We'll talk about the application, cover some nuts and bolts about the application. Then we'll cover the case list. A case list has to be submitted with the application. And with that, we'll talk about our ABOS Patient Reported Outcomes Program. Finally, we'll answer any questions that you have. Once I finish our, my remarks, then if you raise your hand in Zoom, we will unmute you and call on you and then answer your question. If you have your question answered, go ahead and lower your hand and then we'll move uh, to people who have uh, new questions. So the ABOS 2025 Part 2 Oral Examination, preparation for that, consists of four parts. Number one is meeting the requirements, and we'll talk about those. Number two is to submit a case list, a surgical case list. 
Number three is to complete the part two examination application. And number four is to submit the application fee with that application and case list. Please understand that all of these documents and fees are submitted through your ABOS dashboard. And you get to that by going to our website at abos.org, log in with your unique username and password. So what are the requirements to sit for the part two oral examination? You must take the oral examination within five years of passing the ABOS part one examination. During that five-year time period, you're considered ABOS board eligible. If you complete a fellowship during that time period, that time in the fellowship does not count towards the total of five years. You do need to have a full and unrestricted license to practice medicine in the United States or Canada. That license is not required if you practice uh, full-time with the federal government, with the military. You must start practice and have been granted hospital admitting and surgical privileges on or before November 1st of 2023. That's for the 2025 examination. So you must have hospital admitting surgical privileges by November 1 or before. You also must be continuously and actively engaged in the practice of operative orthopedic surgery other than as a resident or fellow or the equivalent of that. And you must be in one location for at least 17 consecutive full calendar months from that November 1 start date, and that takes you through March 31, 2025. So the 17-month requirement is inclusive of those dates, November 1st of 2023 to March 31st of 2025. Your hospital and practice affiliations must remain the same during that 17-month time period, and you must maintain full admitting hospital and surgical privileges throughout that time period. And that's at one practice location. That's not just staying in the same town, that's staying in the same practice. Those hospital privileges at one of those hospitals at least must include those two dates from November 1 of 2023 through March 31 of 2025. It's not six months and then six more months and six more months. It's 17 continuous months at at least one of those hospitals having full uh, admitting and surgical privileges. So submitting the case list. What we you need to do uh, is submit all consecutive surgical cases from January 1 to June 30 of 2024. That is a change. We've moved the case list from April to September to January to June. And those are cases in which you're the primary surgeon. You don't enter cases if you're the co-surgeon or an assistant surgeon, there is a list of procedures, a list of CPT codes that includes procedures that you don't need to submit, and that's found on our website at abos.org. As you submit your case list, we will ask for an MRN, medical record number. That's the hospital or surgery center medical record number. If that facility doesn't assign a medical record number, and sometimes that occurs not until the time of surgery, you can use a chart number initially and then change that uh, as you go through the case collection period to the medical record number. That medical record number is for you and for the hospital to be able to identify that patient. So at the end of the time period, you're gonna need to take that case list from each institution to medical records and have them verify that those are all the cases you did during that time period. So that's what that medical record number is for. 
Your cases are also submitted through your ABOS dashboard. There are detailed instructions and there's an information packet that's called information packet preparing your case list. And that's found on your ABOS dashboard. There are a number of videos that will help you upload and input cases. And those instructional videos are also found on our website. So many people ask, why do we do a case list? Why do we collect a case list? We collect a case list that allows us to assess a candidate's practice. We're orthopedic surgeons, and so we need to assess the operative practice of orthopedic surgery for each individual who would like to become board certified and be an ABOS diplomate. It's also an opportunity as you submit your cases onto that case list and add in the complications if they occur in the follow-up, it's a time for self-evaluation of your performance and practice. At the end of the time period, when you submit the case list, we then do an evaluation, compare your case list to other case lists, and we will give you a feedback report that will allow you to compare yourself with both all of the ortho orthopedic surgery peers who submit a case list during that time period, and then also for peers in your subspecialty. In addition, finally, and most importantly for our, our webinar tonight, that case list is the basis for cases that we choose for you to present at the time of your oral examination. So we collect a case list throughout your career at each point of both certification now and then recertification throughout your career. We feel that's a critical way to evaluate uh, candidate or diplomate's practice. The patient reported outcomes, we like to collect on all of the patients that, it, that you operate on in that six month period. We will collect those for all of those surgeries during the collection period. What you do is enter the case information at the time you schedule the surgery. So you can start now, that's open for the cases that are scheduled in January. You can have a staff member enter those cases as they're scheduled and you will need an email address from the patient. What we will do with that email address is then send out patient reported outcomes questionnaires on pain interference and physical function at time before surgery, preoperative status at six months, and then at 12 months after the surgery. And we have communication templates in the packet that's posted to your dashboard that will help you communicate to your patients what the patient reported outcomes are all about. We then use that uh, that email to solicit those questionnaires at those three time periods. The questions vary based on their patient response and the surgical site. So some are for upper extremity, some are for lower extremity. And it's a graded uh, questionnaire such that it's really five to seven questions that allow us to make a judgment in each of those categories as nationally validated uh, uh, questionnaires. They're available in both English and Spanish. If you'd like to see what that questionnaire looks like or how it, it works, you can register yourself as a patient with your email address, and then you'll get that the first questionnaire. You need to delete that case at some time before you finalize your case list. And then we utilize that outcome information by our credentials for our credentials committee. We also will give you a patient reported outcomes report so you can, again, see how your patients and your patient reported outcomes uh, uh, look when compared to a national database. This is what that patient reported outcome screen looks like. And you can see it's 
general information. You input the hospital. So the first is a drop-down menu for the hospital surgical center or office surgery. You put in the ID, their initials, their age, patient sex, and then if they prefer Spanish, the date of the surgery. You can describe the surgery. This says 100 characters. What we're looking for in the surgical description is something that identifies the case to both the board and to you. So that would be right total hip arthroplasty, left distal biceps tendon repair, open reduction internal fixation of an open tibia fracture, those sorts of things. There's an area for, you don't have to describe in detail uh, a whole lot of information and fill the hundred characters. What we want is how, if we said, what case did you do today? That's the type of information we need there. It's not a place to put a paragraph. It's a place to a short description of the procedure. Then the anatomical area you'll put in, if the patient opts out of a, a um, patient reported outcome, you can click that box and then you enter their email address and submit that. And that will allow us to then uh, input that. Uh, as far as the, um, we'll input their email and then they'll get the questionnaire. Once you're entering the case, once you've done the case, this is what that page looks like. If you have input, put in that information, the patient reported outcome screens, those areas of this will be pre-populated, but then you'll put the date of your last follow-up, ICD, ICD-9 uh, or 10 codes, your treatment codes, and then again, that brief description uh, of the uh, operation. We don't need history there. We just, again, need the operation, the anatomic region, and then on the right side of the screen is an unexpected reoperation and an explanation, unexpected readmission. And then if you click yes on any one of those three complication categories, anesthetic, surgical, or technical, or medical, there'll be a drop-down menu that will allow you to classify those. So let's talk about the application. The application is now available. Uh, the application and case list are due August 15th, 2024 at 4 p.m. Eastern time. These are hard deadlines. Again, August 15th, 2024 at 4 p.m. Eastern time. The application entry site will close at 4 p.m. That's a hard deadline. Um, application, it requests things that are routinely found in applications of this type that you're used to filling out. A couple notes, it will ask for each of your practice locations and you'll need your partner's names and their emails. If you have a large practice, we limit that to 12, I believe, with email addresses. Uh, and you also need hospital and surgery centers where you have admitting and surgical privileges. And we need a current letter indicating your original appointment date and the dates of your appointment. If that happened in November, that's probably your initial letter, but we need a letter that's current that says, you have hospital admitting and surgical privilege as each of those institutions. In addition, at each institution, we'll need names and email addresses for chiefs of staff, chief of surgery, orthopedics, emergency medicine, radiology, anesthesiology, the head of orthopedic nursing, and the OR nursing supervisor, or the equivalent in each of those categories. We need your state medical licenses, the dates of those and the license numbers. And then finally, for our peer review program, you'll select from a drop-down menu of ABOS diplomates, five diplomates who are familiar with your practice that aren't anywhere else in the application. So the peer review program, you know, why do we do this? It's a comprehensive review program. We feel it's very important 
for our candidates, both applicants to sit for the examination, and then we do this throughout an orthopedic surgeon's career, and they get an electronically accessed survey that asks questions about your patient care, your surgical skills, your professionalism, your communication. The peer review sources are those email addresses that I just mentioned on the application, and also we use a zip code list from the zip code of your practice, and then we take concentric circles and we send zip code peer review to diplomates in your area. So let's talk about costs and expenses. When you submit the application, it's $975. If you submit by 4 p.m. on the day of the deadline, then you'll submit the application, the case list, and the application fee. Uh, I will tell you, as it gets closer to 4 p.m. Uh, and more people are on the website, it can run some more slowly. So I would not wait till 3.45 p.m. on that date. I would probably get it done a few days sooner. If you don't get it done, there is a two-week extension that incurs a late fee of 500 additional dollars, but that can take you to 4 p.m. Eastern time on August 31st, 2024. At the time of the examination due in June of 2025, there's a $1,350 examination fee. As far as uploading cases, so once you submit your case list, your application, the application fee, we obtain the peer review, then all of that is reviewed and taken to our credentials committee. They review that. If you're approved to sit for the examination in April of 2025, you'll receive a list of 12 selected cases. And those are the 12 cases you'll present at the time of the oral examination. You'll then begin the upload process. Again, you get that case list at 12 selected cases in April of 2025. You'll have until early June to submit all the documentation. That's documents and images. There are instructions on the website as to what you should upload and what you should not upload. That's in an information packet contained on the ABOS dashboard. Again, I would encourage you not to wait until June to start uploading that documentation. You should start in April when you get that case list, those 12 selected cases, excuse me. So on the day of the application, some of these things may go without saying, dress and professional attire. Keep in mind, that'll be in Chicago in July of 2025. Follow the email instructions that you get very carefully on where and when to show up and meet for the examination. Everything that you submit for those 12 cases will be available on the computer screen that you'll be able to see at the time of the examination and the examiners will be able to see that as well. Keep in mind, after you upload, you can look at that information on the site so that you'll be able to see what you've uploaded and how it will look at the time of the examination. At the time of the examination, that will consist of four sessions of 25 minutes each, five minutes of break time in between those sessions. And in each of those sessions, you'll present three of those 12 cases. There'll be two examiners and they will ask you questions about the three cases that are chosen for that session. So it's about eight minutes per case. So it's a short period of time. You really wanna be familiar with your cases and what you've uploaded uh, at the time of the examination. How is the examination scored? 
Each examiner scores each case in nine different areas, nine different facets of our scoring rubric. The scoring rubric is pictured here. It's available on the website. You can click on it. It's a PDF that you can download and print and look at that. So each examiner evaluates each case in these nine areas. They use the scoring rubric and evaluate each case in nine areas. They don't pass or fail. They grade cases. And so it's critical for you to be familiar with the scoring rubric, both as you upload your cases, as you prepare to present the cases, and then as you present the cases. And then each examiner is graded by psychometricians. We evaluate the severity leniency, adjust each of the scores, and ensure that each candidate uh, uh, receives as fair an application as we possibly, uh, fair as fair an examination as we possibly can make it. Uh, there are videos about preparation on our website. There are videos about the scoring rubric. My advice to you, this is what the examination booth looks like. This is actually in Chicago, an examination booth. My advice, if you remember anything about the upload process now, that will take place in April of 25. Do that yourself. Do it early and practice using that website, using the platform you will use at the time of the examination. Hence, be honest with reporting your complications. It's never good when you're presenting a case in Chicago and there's a complication of one type or another that doesn't appear on your complication listing. You should be prepared to explain both what you did to avoid complications, why the complication occurred, and then how you treated the complication. You want to try and get those patients in for follow-up. If you're not able to get patients for follow-up, you need to be prepared to explain how you determine the follow-up time period and what you do when patients don't follow up. I would practice presenting your cases with colleagues who will be critical of your cases and use the scoring rubric while reviewing your presentation and your cases. The information package packets are extremely helpful. Yes, they're long and detailed, but I would encourage you to look at those very carefully because they include all of the information that you should need to be successful. You need informed consent on each of the 12 selected cases. That's obviously a big deal. And so you want to have the informed consent form ready to upload. I, I, obviously, again, some of these things go without saying. You probably don't want to argue with the examiners. They don't give feedback, so they will ask you questions. You'll give an answer, and they'll move on to the next question. They're instructed to score the examination. Not It's not an educational session, so you won't get a lot of feedback, and that's a little bit disconcerting at times, so you want to practice with that in mind. So the overall process is what we really need to talk about now. So let's just go through each of the eight steps. Number one, you should start entering the patient-reported outcome information at the time of the surgery schedule. scheduled. You can work on the other case uh, list sections that, that need to be uh, filled out later on after the surgery is performed. But once you get that information in there, that will register the patient for the patient-reported outcomes. You'll submit your case list, the application, and pay the fee through your dashboard. Again, those are the deadlines there, August 15th, August 31st. We'll then obtain peer review, review the case list. Our credentials committee will meet in April of 2025, review all those applications, all that information. 
Shortly after that, we'll send you an email and let you know whether you've been approved or not approved to sit for the examination. If you're approved to sit, you'll receive the list of 12 selected cases that you're responsible for, for presenting. You'll upload all the required documents. Again, there's a video about how to upload the documents. We have podcasts about how to upload the documents. If you have questions, please don't hesitate to call us. You'll pay the examination fee after you finalize your uploads. There's a deadline for those uploads as well. Keep in mind, probably between 800 and 1,000 people are uploading documents. That's over 200,000 images and about 190,000 documents. So if everyone waits until the last two hours to upload those things, that grinds everything to a very slow rate. And so you want to try and get that done beforehand. Uh, again, you'll pay the examination fee when you finalize. Then you'll take the examination in July. In June, we'll get you your specific date and time, and that will be communicated by email. We'll get that to you as soon as we possibly can, but it's usually in June because we need to set up eight examiners in your subspecialty and that scheduling to get eight examiners where you have no conflicts uh, for 800 or 1,000 people is a little bit of a chess game. So that occurs, again, between the time that you finalize and the time that we send that out. You'll receive an email with a link to your examination results in early September 2025. Please keep us updated, not only between now and then, but throughout your career with your email address, your contact information. You can up the, update that at any time. The email address is absolutely critical because we communicate with you by email. So that's critical for you to keep that up to date. We spend a lot of time making sure that we send you emails that are specific to you. Uh, we don't send blanket emails. Hey, everyone, here's a deadline that's coming up. If you've already responded, you probably won't receive something that says a deadline's coming up. If you've not responded and it says you need to submit something by a deadline, that's meant for you. Uh, each of you are assigned a certification specialist that will stick with you throughout your career. Uh, they're assigned based on the last, uh, the first letter of your last name. They're pictured here. Uh, our phone number is pictured here. Uh, they are here to help you with this process. Please don't hesitate to call any one of them or feel free to call any one of us that you see on the call. We're happy to help you through this process. So you don't want to be the Tyrannosaurus Rex uh, and miss the arc as it pulls away. Because uh, as you can tell, you know, 800 or 1,000 people taking the oral exam the arc is loaded, it's full, and we can't turn it around once the deadline occurs. Once that deadline occurs, it's a hard deadline, and then we're going to be looking at 2026. So just try to stay up with the deadlines. Um, we have to be fair to everyone, and so we, we stay hard to our deadlines. Uh, at, by way of a couple of resources on our website, uh, you can find a lot of information. This is a new website we launched in the last several months. It's called absroadmap.org. It takes you from residency to retirement, and it guides you through three stages of your career, orthopedic surgery residency, initial board certification, and finally maintenance of certification. And this is the front page of that website. If you click on any one of those gray boxes, it takes you to that area. 
It has a lot of useful information and links there. So I'd encourage you to follow that throughout your career, absroadmap.org. We're uh, active on social media. There's a website called mycertifiedorthopedicsurgeon.org. That's patient-facing. So if your patients want to know what you go through to become board certified, send them to mycertifiedorthopedicsurgeon.org, and it goes through the whole process. There are patient interviews there. There are uh, uh, videos that will explain the whole process. It's a very good website for your patients. You can follow us on Facebook, on X, which I still call Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Instagram. Uh, I'd also uh, direct you to the podcast, anchor.fm forward slash ABOS or wherever you find your podcast. And this is, uh, I know you hear a lot about podcasts, but there are many very useful podcasts there. How to prepare for the examination, how we put the examination together, successful candidates on our various examinations and what they did to be successful. And then there are some uh, really uh, pillars of our community that are interviewed by David Elstein and talk about their career in orthopedic surgery. And I think you, they're they're short, but very informative. And I really encourage you to check those out. That's the end of the comments that I have. Uh, my contact information is here. Uh, we'll now start answering questions. Again, raise your hand in Zoom and we'll call on you uh, in order. This webinar will be posted tomorrow to our website. It will be posted to YouTube and an audio only version will be posted on our podcast. So we really appreciate your attention and uh, I will stop sharing my screen and we'll start to answer questions uh, at this point. So we'll start with uh, Dr. Miles. Hi, thank you so much. <clears throat> For those uh, applicants who are going to be backdating their uh, case log because they're out for whatever reason, um, how are you handling the patient report outcomes? I'm going to be backdating until November 1st, and since I haven't already started doing my case list, it's already been a, a month of cases. Is that going to be a problem? So I don't know if I emphasize that um, um, quite enough during the, um, during the, the comments, but if you're away from your practice for uh, 14 days, then you need to contact us and we'll back up your case list a month to try and get a good uh, sampling of your practice. If you're going to be gone for more than 30 days, then you need to call your certification specials and we will back that up. Uh, we have some wiggle room. If it's more than 30 days, you need to talk to one of our certification specials and we'll work that out. Uh, since we are past November 1, uh, you can input those patients the information and we will get six-month and 12-month uh, patient-reported outcomes. Um, and once you put that in, we would send them a questionnaire that would ask for their them to estimate what their, their physical function and, and pain was like prior to surgery. Um, but if you, if you can't do that, that, that shouldn't be a problem. Great. Thank you. Let's go with Dr. Bridges. Hi, good evening. Um, thanks for all the great information. I have two questions. Uh, what was the reason for shifting the case collection uh, earlier in the year? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and there are several reasons for that. Um, number one, it uh, aligns with... Uh, the first of the year and aligns with other ca the case lists that we collect for recertification candidates. 
Uh, number two, it uh, probably most importantly allows for more follow-up uh, at the time of the examination. So allows us to choose cases uh, all the way through uh, the end of the collection period and still have uh, a longer follow-up. And uh, finally, it um, helps us to move the uh, due dates for the application in the case list earlier in the year. And that's uh, we we um, think will be a less busy time for both candidates uh, and for our staff to go through those applications, evaluate the case list, gives us more time to evaluate the case list, gives us more time to obtain the peer review that we need um, to um, have someone sit for the examination. So those are all, all the reasons uh, that we, we felt that that was a, a reasonable thing to do. Okay, uh, thank you. And um, what are some reasons why you wouldn't be uh, able to sit uh, in April when you get the um, e email? Uh, so uh, you're you um, are are you mean after the credentials committee evaluation? I guess that's what I'm understanding. Uh, so um, our credentials committee evaluates the case list. Uh, we have a computer algorithm that evaluates each case list, looks for complication rates, looks for uh, some outlier type cases, uh, and then those case lists are evaluated by uh, a group of case list evaluators. Uh, peer review, uh, if uh, there's um, negative peer review, that's evaluated by our credentials committee. Uh, various issues on the application, licensure issues, uh, those are the types of things uh, that would uh, cause someone not to be able to sit at the time of the examination. So overall evaluation of your practice at the time of the uh, credentials committee meeting. Okay, thank you. And David, isn't there a minimum number of cases that could also lead into that problem? Uh, sure, although we, yeah, at the time of we, if you don't, in the six month time period, uh, there's a, a 35 case minimum. So we need all the cases for that six months. But if you don't get to 35 cases, uh, then you actually can't sit for the examination. So uh, we try to identify that at the time a person's finalizing their application. So that that would happen uh, in August. Um, but yeah, that would be another reason not, not to be able to sit for the examination. That's correct. Let's go with uh, Dr. Lepkowski. Hi, thank you. Uh... I have two questions. Um, the first one is for patients who don't have an email address for whatever reason, uh, what should we do instead? Uh, so that would be a, an automatic opt out if they're unable to um, receive an email that, that then they could, um, you can check the opt out box. Okay, great. And then for my second question, uh, with regards to updating the um, final follow-up visits, as well as the current letter for a certification. It sounds like that's something that needs to be gotten as close to submitting the application as possible. So how, when should we do that by, because we also don't want to wait till the last second either. Sure. I think, um, you know, with the deadlines by the end of July, I think you want to start, um, uh, you know, getting the, once you finalize the case list or finish the six month time period at the end of June, you can print the case list and then take that to medical records to have them sign off on that. 
So that can happen starting June 30th. And then sometime in July, you can put the final follow-up date and uh, be able to finalize the case list. And same for that uh, certification letter as well. The medical record certification letter, yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Let's go with uh, Dr. Rutkowski. Thank you. Um, thanks for hosting this webinar. I have two questions as well. The first is about that certification letter regarding our um, like period of, um, uh, you know, having hospital credentials. You said that we need to have a current letter. Um, how how current does it need to be? Um, I just don't want to run into the situation of requesting it from my hospital in you know June or something, and it takes them a month to get it. So, what's like the earliest date we can have on that letter? Uh, I may defer to Denise on that. I mean, I, I think it, it needs to be, they can date it up to the time that you, uh, submit the application. Is okay. that correct, Denise? Okay. Thank yes. you. And then the, the second yeah. question is about, um, submitting. So if, you know, we submit a case, um, a case and it has a complication and we add that into that case and we need to reoperate on that patient, do we just submit the reoperation as a whole separate case? Um, do we need to link those somehow? How does that work? Uh, the reoperation is a separate case and um, they'll get linked by the patient identifiers. You don't have to link those. Okay, thank you. Let's go with Dr. Nellis. Nellis, yes, thank you. Uh, I've, I've actually uh, kind of a couple of questions and I guess they're kind of inter interrelated a little bit. Um, the first one is still about kind of the opt-out uh, email addresses and stuff. Uh, I guess most specifically is like like cases that come in on call and stuff. Like you mentioned submitting submitting the case when you're scheduling a surgery, but you're not really scheduling those surgeries. They're just kind of happening. Um, so should we still be trying to collect patient reported outcomes from these? How should that work? Uh, yeah, so that could be submitted afterwards if you, you know, at the first post-op visit. Uh, or once you have that information uh, uh, from the patient, uh, and, and then they're asked to estimate what they were like before the surgery. Uh, that actually, with the patient-reported outcomes, the PROMISE system uh, has been uh, pretty reliable. So that you can enter those after the time of the initial surgery. Obviously, trauma won't be entered before the surgery, for sure. Sure, right. Um, I guess... On that same vein, um, as far as the opt-out and email addresses and stuff goes, um, you know, older populations, fair amount of indigent population, is there like a, a, a cutoff maximum number of people you have to avoid opting out on? Or I, I kind of anticipate a reasonable number of the call cases end up opting out for a variety of socioeconomic reasons. There's not, there's no specific minimum or maximum there. Although um, uh, you'd be surprised at the percentage of uh, patient reported outcomes that we have for the case list. It, it's um, reasonably high. Okay. And obviously most uh, people at this point have an email. Certainly there's indigent populations or people who don't, um, you know, speak English or Spanish. Uh, there are people who um, don't fill out the, the questionnaires or opt out at the time. So yeah, but um, I, we'd like people to do the best they can. Sure. Okay. Finally, last, um, uh, same thing, 
fair amount of call cases, uh, but I subspecialize in spine. Um, how does it get, you know, say, say I have 50-50 spine and general ortho trauma cases, how does it get decided where, which board I sit for? So you're, you're sitting for boards in orthopedic surgery, right? So it's an orthopedic surgery board certification. And what we will try and do is utilize your case list and the 12 selected cases and your practice and match examiners uh, that, that uh, um, fit with those areas. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Let's go with Dr. Sneddon. Uh, yeah, thank you for putting on the webinar. Uh, in regard to the time away from your practice, is the 14 days just business days or does that include for like Saturday, Sunday? Denise? It's 14, 14 consecutive days. If you're used to working on Saturdays and Sundays, then you include it. If you don't, then you don't. Okay, thank 14 you. business days that you when you're working. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, that really functions to your advantage if you're going to be away from your practice for a time. The idea of the caseless is to evaluate your practice and arrive at a reasonable group of cases that you can have 12 selected cases chosen from. So I, if you're away from your practice, it's probably a good idea to let us know so we can back up your case list and get a more representative uh, group of patients uh, that we're operating on for your uh, case list. Uh, Dr. Wang is up now. Hi, I just had a quick question about the November 1st deadline for hospital admitting privileges. Um, specifically for myself, I, I was operating out of a surgery center, but I didn't get my hospital admitting privileges until mid-November. Um, would I still be eligible to sit for boards come 2025? Um, no, you would not. It has to be hospital admitting and surgical privileges by November 1. Uh, the board um, sticks to that deadline uh, firmly. So it has to be hospital admitting and surgical privileges by November 1. Let's go with uh, Dr. Still. I thank you. Quick question. So if you operate on a patient prior to your board collection period and then you reoperate on the same patient during your board collection period for, uh, you know, either a, a complication or for a separate procedure, does that original surgery, is there a look back period where that original surgery becomes, uh, can be a part of your, your board examination? Uh, if that case were chosen, then the original surgery uh, there would be documents there that you would want to upload to present that case. So the, that information would be important if you were presenting that case. So you just have to look at it if it's a, um, a non-union of a fracture and you were going to present that case to someone, you would want to say, here's the injury films, here's how they were initially treated, whether that's you or someone else. Here's how how uh, they look preoperatively, and then this is the operation, this is the follow-up. So um, in that way, that information would be important. That initial case wouldn't be chosen, but uh, you have to just think about it as if you're presenting a case. So if you were going to present that case to someone, you would need some information about the initial surgery. Thank you. 
Let's go with a uh, Dr. Sanko. Hi, thank you. Um, do you have any recommendations for those of us who might be practicing in more rural areas in terms of getting the peer review recommendations from outside of our practice? Uh, sure. So you don't have to get the peer review uh, questionnaires. We, the board does that. What you will need to do is fill out the application and have those names and emails on the application. And then in the drop-down list, you'll pick five diplomates who are familiar with your practice. And so hopefully you'll be able to find uh, some people in that list that, that would be somewhat familiar with your practice. Thank you. Dr. Robinson. Hi, thank you for your time. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yes. Um, quick question about when you're the primary versus co-surgeon or assistant. Um, as somebody who does spine, I'm asked to do deformities or other things with other orthopedists or neurosurgeons or even um, combo oncology cases. At what point do I decide, is that like a, a, a choice I have to make if I'm substantially involved or not? How do you want that handled? So if you're the primary surgeon and you dictate the operative note and you did the preoperative care and the postoperative care, that's a patient that would, uh, or a case that would go onto your case list. If you were assisting someone else and it was their patient that they did the preoperative care and the postoperative care, then that's probably not something that you would want on your case list. You would not include on your case okay, list. Okay, that makes sense. And then another follow-up, um, do we need to be following the patients in the postoperative period for our entire, like through this whole time? Or there are some patients who want released like at three, four, five months, like do we need to be following them at a, a longer time period for you? Or, or is that something where you're reaching out to them with email to get their uh, outcomes? No, uh, you. we don't want you to change your practice. We, you would follow the patient as you normally would. So at whatever time you would see the patient back after surgery or whatever time you would discharge them from, from your practice, that's what you need to do. So I no, we don't want we don't want you to follow people during the whole time uh, for, uh, you know, if you otherwise normally wouldn't. Uh, okay. So we want you to, you know, participate in your normal practice. If a patient's ready for discharge then they're ready for discharge, that's, uh, you know, obviously that's a judgment call. But I, I think we would want you to follow patients the way you normally would. Got it. And then lastly, there's lots of patients who maybe have like tandem stenosis and you may be doing repeat operations on them in a short period of time. Let's say cervical myelopathy, decompression, followed by neurogenic claudication later on down the line, like, you know, three or four months later. Is there a way to distinguish two separate problems in your case list versus like a repeat operation on the same patient? Uh, I, I'm not. Those would be entered as separate cases. Uh, if it's a, uh, if it's a, there's a place in the initial case to list, uh, uh, you know, uh, repeat operation, or uh, reoperation, uh, for the same problem. If it's a different problem, you merely list the patient and list a different problem. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Garofalo. Hi. Um, also have two questions. The first one being, if you do predominantly most of your cases at an ASC versus a hospital setting, 
do you want us to submit all of that faculty information for both the hospital that we're credentialed at as well as the ambulatory surgery center for you guys to do your background review? Uh, yeah, for each institution. So we would count a surgery center as an institution. Okay. And then with respect to credentials for satisfying the requirement to, to sit for the 2025, would you need to be credentialed? Would you need to be credentialed at the ASC by November, or if you were already credentialed at the hospital that you were practicing associated with, that that fulfills that requirement? That fulfills that requirement. You need to have a hospital admitting surgical privileges at a hospital right. by November 1, and that those privileges at that institution need to extend through the that 17-month time period. Gotcha. And the reason so why I ask is because I've been credentialed. What's that? The reason why I ask is because I've been credentialed at three hospitals since I started practicing, but added a new surgery center. And I'm going to be doing a lot of my cases out of that surgery center. And so I just wanted to know if that's a, a conflict. Yeah, no, that's okay. That's not a problem. Thank you. Uh, let's go with Dr. Johnson. Hi, quick question regarding the time away. I Everything says 14 consecutive days. Is there a limit on cumulative days during the six-month collection period? Uh, uh, no, uh, that might incur the, the 35 case minimum, but uh, I guess you mean like two days here, two days here, two days here, like that? Yeah, like over the course of six months, taking a few intermittent week-long vacations. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Um, I did have one other question. So regarding the, in the scribe system, the complications report, there's a couple of ones like hypotension, hypo, like hypoxia. Are there thresholds where you'd want us to report those? Are those intraoperative, you know, post-op day one, or are those, you know, brief periods overnight kind of thing? I think that's a judgment call. I mean, if you thought that was a complication and that that's something that, uh, you know, affected patient care, I think that's something that I would list. Uh, if you felt like it was, you know, more standard, uh, then I, I don't think it needs to be listed. I think that's a judgment call. Okay, thank you. And I'm going to butcher this name, Dr. Lamedico. Oh, yes, you got it perfectly. Um, a couple questions, just kind of piggybacking on the vacation. Um, for example, I'm in January 1st, I'm going on vacation for two weeks, but I'll still be doing like telehealth visits and stuff. I don't know if that counts as being away from my practice or, uh, and if so, does that mean that I'll have to include cases from my December, from December, two weeks in advance, just so I can clarify what that exactly means. Uh, if you were going to be away for two weeks and not seeing patients, then that would be the 14 consecutive days. And I would recommend backing up into December if you let us know we can do that. Oh, okay. But so telehealth, so seeing patients remotely, does that count as seeing patients? In your... uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure we absolutely have, have that uh, as a hard and fast rule. Again, the backing up is for to your advantage, so you get more follow up and a more representative uh, group of patients for your practice. So, um, I would think that telehealth would not not count towards that. Not not count. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
So it, and so as it, you submit the case list, then the the computer algorithm that looks at the case list picks up those gaps in your case list. And so then that would bounce back and we would you would end up most likely having to do that later. Gotcha. And then um, right now I'm looking like for the initial submission, it asks, you know, for you to list the people in your local neighborhood, et cetera, to that aren't in your, aren't in your practice um, that should be reached out to. Um, I mean, obviously most of us have just started practicing within a month or two. And so I'm sort of picking random people, uh, you know, four months from now, things might change or I'm worked and I'm more familiar with people. Can I change the names that I've selected after selecting them right now? Or is it whatever I pick now is going to stand? No, you can change your application up until the time that you submit it. Okay. And that's it. Thank you. Dr. Baramani. Hi there. Uh, thank you for the talk. I have uh, two quick questions. Uh, <clears throat> the first one is uh, I have an unrestricted license, but uh, because I'm Canadian, I was given a temporary one just to help me out to get my visa stuff sorted quickly. I'm eligible to apply for a full license and I will be doing that soon, but I just wanted to check uh, if I'd still be eligible to um, sit the exam in, 20, in the um, in the year that we're saying if I currently hold a temporary but unrestricted license. Denise, I would defer to you, but I think if you have an unrestricted license at the time you apply and you're have a, you can meet all the other requirements, I think that would be okay. Okay. Are you practicing in Canada or the United States? No, I'm I'm practicing in the U.S. Okay, and we we will accept your Canadian license also. Okay, I mean I I gave up my Canadian one to pick up a Texas license. Oh. That's why, but it I got a temporary license because to help me out with my visa just to have it in time. But I'm applying for my full license now, but it might not come in in January first. That's why. So are you operating now? Yeah, yeah, I'm operating because I have an unrestricted license. It just has a, a shorter end date. It just ends uh, in about a year, the temporary one, but I'm applying for my full one now, so. That's accepted. Okay. Yeah. And then the other quick question, I think other people sort of alluded to it as well. The picking the peers, um, you know, for the peer review, I work in an academic center. Most of my referrals from other orthopedic surgeons are coming from within my group itself. We're a very large group. I don't have much contact with community surgeons. If anything, they're actually sending their revisions to me. Um, I'm not really in talk with them about my cases. Um, do you have any sort of advice on how to pick out these sort of peer, you know, these surgeons in the community? If they're referring patients to you, you can use them as your references. They'll be able to complete our evaluation for you. Okay. Okay, perfect. Thanks a lot. So we're going to have about another 30 minutes with this panel of Q&A. And right now, uh, Dr. Miller. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Um, so I also had two questions. One, in terms of the uh, opt-out patients, do will they count in the 35 that is the requirement, or do you need a 35 that have not opted out? Uh, no, the opt-out uh, uh, only applies to the patient-reported outcomes. So okay. the surgical cases are what counts towards the 35. Okay. And then my second question, I, I don't know how much of this um, you guys can speak to, but I, I think it's 
um, no surprise. Well, uh, it's no, uh, let's see, how do I want to say this? Um, the failure rate over the past few years has been increasing. And at least from those that I've talked to, there's not a lot of feedback, as you mentioned, as to how you do um, and why that may be the case. And so I'm just wondering if you can speak at all to, is there, are there things that as uh, future sitting um, surgeons we can do to maybe be better prepared that? Uh, sure. That's something that we've uh, looked at very carefully. Uh, the uh, pass rate has uh, been down from uh, what it was uh, previously over the last uh, two to three years. Uh, and uh, something we've uh, looked at uh, uh, from every angle. And I think uh, basically uh, the points that uh, you heard during the presentation uh, paying close attention to the scoring rubric, um, uploading your your information for the 12 selected cases, uh, yourself making sure that the documents are in order, the images are in order, and they're a good representation of your cases, uh, practicing going through that on the platform to make sure uh, the documents get uh, in the proper order and that the appropriate documents are there. And then uh, again, Doing all that with the scoring rubric in mind, I think, is uh, um, very, um, uh, very important. Uh, again, practicing your presentations, uh, knowing your cases uh, is certainly critical and knowing the uh, features around each case. Uh, and then uh, the feedback is hard. The, the, uh, the examination is designed to get to a pass fail plus minus decision is not designed to lead to feedback or to make people better orthopedic surgeons or to uh, make them better at taking oral examinations, not that that's a, a talent that you would want to acquire. But uh, so that that makes the feedback uh, somewhat difficult, but it's certainly something that uh, uh, we've tried to make the process as uh, open as possible. Uh, and, and all those features, the videos uh, that are on our website, uh, I would really encourage uh, people to watch to pay close attention to the, um, again, the information packet that's there now talks about how to put the case list together, how to go through the application process. Once the selected cases, the 12 cases uh, are posted, then there'll be another information packet. And to start on that early and make sure uh, that you have access to all the documents, I think all those things uh, uh, contribute uh, uh, to someone being successful. Thank you. Dr. Richard? Hi, can you guys hear me? Yes. Thank you for uh, the talk tonight. Um, so my question is back to the November 1st deadline. Um, I've had hospital privileges and surgery privileges from before that at one facility, but my group is trying to get me to expand to another hospital. From my understanding, you only need those privileges at one facility from before November 1st, it's okay if you obtain them at separate hospitals. You can obtain other privileges, but you need to keep those privilege, hospital and surgical privileges at the place that you start September 1st through March 31st of 2025. Thank you. Dr. Yoon. 
Is there somewhere on the application where we indicate our subspecialty or you decide that for us, depending on the cases that we submit? Uh, so actually both of those things. Uh, there is a place on, on the application to indicate subspecialty. Uh, and then uh, we, uh, again, try and tailor the examiners uh, that you come in contact with, with uh, the case list and the 12 selected cases. Then let's say um, I do quite a bit of bilaterals, like one side and then a couple of months later on the other side for, let's say, a carpal tunnel. If one case was out of the collection period and the other case was within the collection period, um, or is is the surgery that was happened to be out of the case collection, the, the board collection period, like still fair game during the exam because we're examining the whole patient or is that case like not really within the scope of the questioning process? So uh, you, if you look at the facets of the scoring rubric, the examiners are uh, interested in rolling through the facets of the scoring rubric. Uh, if someone had an operation six months ago and then had an operation today and that operation uh, impinged upon the operation today, then that would be something that someone could ask questions about. I think if someone had a carpal tunnel six months ago and then had a carpal tunnel today, if I was presenting the carpal tunnel case from today, I would say this is a 63-year-old female had a carpal tunnel done on the right side six months ago. They did extremely well after that operation, and that operation involved XYZ, and then came today with these indications is why I did this surgery and then present that surgery. I mean, I think you have to think about what you would want to hear if someone was presenting the case to you. Okay. Thank you. Dr. Carr? Hi. Yes. Uh, thank you for putting on the webinar again. Um, my practice already collects uh, patient-reported outcomes preoperatively and at three, six, uh, nine, and 12 months. I'm a little worried that if the patients are getting two emails, two patient-reported outcomes surveys to fill out, that they may not uh, exactly understand that or make it confused on what they should be filling out. If I get the patient-reported outcome data for all of my patients, is there a way to submit that to you guys from my current collection? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Unfortunately, it's not not something that we've um, uh, been able to uh, accomplish thus far. So what we would like you to do to is, is explain to the patient, and again, we have communications in the information packet that you can use and say, you know, I'm in my board collection time period and you're gonna get, uh, you know, three emails. Uh, from the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. That will be in addition to uh, the other emails. It's a short uh, uh, communication, a short questionnaire. It'll take maybe five minutes of your time. Really appreciate it if you would fill that out for me during the case collection period. It is, it is a little bit uh, a little bit of an increased burden, but we'd like for you to do that if at all possible. Of course. Thank you. Sure. Uh, Dr. Zuskoff? Hi, uh, can you hear me all right? Yes. Great. A um, uh, couple questions, Senator, on the same uh, issue. The move up of the board collection window, sort of speaking for myself, obviously you're capturing a more nascent portion of folks' practices. Um, and if you're still in that ramp up phase where you're doing primarily call cases, not a lot of elective stuff, 
um, and you, you know, get 40 cases or something like that. Is that viewed as a detractor in your application if you're just like just barely above the 35 case minimum? Uh, no, the 35 cases is is 35 case minimum. So that um, that's set to allow a good evaluation of the practice, set to allow us to have a reasonable uh, a set of cases to choose the 12 selected cases from. So uh, no, that's that's not a problem. Got it. And then if you know your subspecialty training is in, let's say joints, but um, you're you know the elective practice is not up and running yet, and you're do, just doing mostly called type cases. Um, is that a detractor from your application or not really? Uh, no, it's not. Gotcha. And then will your examiners then be more trauma-centered folks and less joints, or do you just kind of look at the case list, look at your fellowship training, and then just pick a list of folks that's a little bit above? <clears throat> Excuse me. As we come down towards the examination, we look at the case list and we look at the actual 12 selected cases to make that make that decision on the examiners. Got it. Thanks. Dr. Lorenzana. Thank you. Uh, hopefully a good question. As has been mentioned, a, a large portion of my practice at this point is call cases and a couple of things specific to that. One is follow-up uh, is a struggle. A lot of my patients are uh, have challenging social situations. Um, and so I, I have not seen a handful of them, even some that I really should see back in clinic. Do you have tips on documentation around that or how that will be looked at? For instance, I have a flexor tendon repair that I, I was just able to get in touch with uh, about two weeks after surgery. Uh, so I think you need to um, fill out your case list in, in, uh, in, in an honest way and include what follow-up you can. Uh, if those cases are chosen, uh, and there's not any follow-up, uh, you can let us know and we may be able to choose a, a, a different case. Uh, that has to happen early when you receive the 12 selected cases. Uh, but, uh, that would be, uh, sometimes those cases are chosen and included on the case list. And, uh, then that's an explanation, uh, on your part for the examiners as to, um, your practice, how you follow up patients, how you would like to follow up patients, what you do when patients don't uh, come in for an appointment and that sort of thing. Sure, thank you. And then last question along those lines is uh, a lot of my calls involved uh, bedside procedures, a lot of which are performed by trainees. Are those considered part of our case uh, listing? Uh, if they're surgical cases and they have an operative node and you're the primary surgeon, uh, and the CPT code is not on our uh, uh, list of uh, codes not to include, then that would be something that would be included on your case list. Thank you. Sure. Dr. Mayo? Yeah, hi, thanks. Um, so I am getting credentialed at some hospitals uh, because my group is credentialed there. And as a sports surgeon, I have uh, little to no intention of ever doing cases at those hospitals because we don't take call there. Um, how do we approach that as far as do we need to get the full list of um, you know letters from the chief of surgery and all that if we've never done a case there? Denise, I'll defer to you. My answer would be yes. I mean, we need, we're interested in where you have privileges and making sure we get information from those hospitals. Guys, thanks. Sounds good. 
Dr. Ames? Uh, yeah, just two questions. Um, one was on the dating of the certification um, for the hospital systems. Like, can I get that letter today saying that, you know, I got privileges on this date, my privileges expire this date, and I'm currently in good standing? Or do I have to wait to get that letter? Denise, I'll defer yeah, to you. you. Go ahead and get that letter and upload your application. So, so dated, dated today would be fine. Yes, and sir. then my other question, which you've already brought up a few times about the, the peer review process, what are, again, the stipulations for whose names we should list or like kind of how far away can they be and how familiar do they have to be? I just, there aren't many orthopedic surgeons that are not within my group that I'm either referring patients to or getting referrals from. So they, there's not a specific distance. There are people who are familiar with your practice, but they you don't have to be referring patients to them or having them refer you patients. I see. Uh, they can be uh, orthopedic surgeons. Uh, is, they need to be board certified ABOS diplomates, but they, they can be in your uh, uh, general geographic area and that's fine. Sounds good. Thank you. Dr. Nestler? Yeah, I just had a question. Um, is it just an automatic opt out for those with dementia or non English or non Spanish speaking patients? Uh, yes. If a patient doesn't have an email or is unable to answer the questionnaire, then uh, that would um, be a place to check opt out for sure. Okay. Thank you. Dr. Patel? Hi. Um, so there's a, I think a few people have brought in this boat. The hospital that I'm credentialed at has a proctoring process. So when you first get credentialed, you have admitting surgical clinical privileges, but you're under proctoring for uh, about 20 cases. That obviously takes some time and then they have to turn that around and give you your full final privileges. How does that factor into your November 1st deadline? So if you have hospital admitting and surgical privileges uh, by November 1 and you're operating as a primary surgeon and those are your patients and you're dictating the operative note, doing their preoperative care and their postoperative care, uh, then those patients go on your case list and uh, that that you need to have privileges to do that. So that that would count from the November 1st date. Thanks. Dr. Blumenthal. Hi, I have a couple of questions. Um, one is, do you know ahead of time the subspecialty of your examiners? Is that something that you're told before you walk in the room or do you do not find that out? Uh, generally the panel, and I, I think uh, it's not every single person on that panel that absolutely shares your subspecialty. It is um, individuals uh, on the um, examining panel who are comfortable examining those cases that are, are on your list. And so examiners may be comfortable examining in various areas, and then they are assigned based on that, that particular, um, those particular uh, um, um, subspecialties that they're comfortable examining in. So I don't know, I, I, that shouldn't really affect your preparation, whether you 
you're talking to orthopedic surgeons. And so they're comfortable examining those cases that are uh, that you're presenting. So I would um, I, I wouldn't prepare any differently. I don't know that that's information that would change anything or should change anything. Thanks. And um, just second question. You had mentioned that for cases that lack follow-up, if the case is selected, that you could let the board know that there isn't follow-up for that patient. I'm I'm trauma and a lot of my patients in one hospital in particular have trouble following up. Is that something that I should do when those cases are selected or just let, or just, it doesn't matter because it's kind of an anticipated possibility with trauma patients? Uh, I, so I, I think if you have a question, you can um, uh, call us and let us know and we can look at that. Okay, thank you. Say. Dr. Vinod. Hi, thank you for taking the time. Uh, just a quick question. Uh, what is being solicited from the um, diplomates that we list on our application? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. You, is that, you mean the peer review process? Correct, yes. Uh, so those uh, individuals uh, receive an email questionnaire. Uh, they can opt out if they don't feel like they have enough information to uh, evaluate you. And then that questionnaire contains um, questions in patient care, professionalism, communication, those areas. Okay. And uh, second question, um, can you update follow-up data after submission of the application or should I wait a few days prior to August 15th so I have all the data that I can get? Uh, no, you can't change that after the time that you uh, um, upload the case list. I don't think you need to wait until three days or five days before then. I think once the, the case collection period closes in June 30th and you work through the rest of the part of the application, then I would just submit that whenever you're ready. Uh, that six to eight week time period is not going to make a difference. And if any of those selected cases follow up in the time between uh, the end of the case collection period and the time that you receive the uh uh, 12 selected cases, you can include that follow-up and present that at the time of the examination. Okay, thank you. The best way to do your case list is as you do the procedure, you enter that as much information as you can. As you follow that patient through, when you finish, say, six weeks out, you finished with that patient, you've released that patient, go in and finish that case. That way in July, you're not trying to do 200 cases to follow up all the information. That's correct. Thank you. Great point. Uh, Dr. Sorrell? Uh, yes, hi, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Uh, good, so uh, thanks very much for the presentation. I have um, two questions. One, uh, similar to some other people here, I have um, already attained hospital privileges for November 1, but my practice wants me to get hospital privileges at another hospital. Can do do all of those hospitals count towards a thirty five case minimum, or only the hospitals that I was privileged at before November one? No, all the cases that you do during the case collection period, wherever they're wherever they take place, but you do need to keep the hospital privileges at the hospital that you started on in November first through March thirtieth of twenty twenty five. Great, you thank you. Add, you can add, but you can't take that one away. Okay. And then second, um, and you may have gone over this, I um, I had a 
patient thing. I was a little bit late to the uh, conference. Um, our case collection period starts January 1. The only reason we would, so I've already been doing some cases, but I'm not technically in boards collection unless I'm out for greater than 14 consecutive days and need to backdate. Is that right? Yes. Great. Okay. That's great. That's it. Great. Dr. McKnight. Richard McKnight, you need you should have a thing on your screen that says to talk. Oh, can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, I was talking to myself. Um, so one question, just um, around the informed consent, do we need to consent every patient during that six-month period for the patient-reported outcomes, or is it only the 12 patients that end up being selected need to have the informed consent for? Uh, so that maybe there's a misunderstanding. The informed consent is for the surgery. I mean, that would be the usual consent form that you obtain prior to surgery is what that's for. Oh, that, there's not an additional consent. No, there's no additional for the patient reported outcomes are completely separate. What that that's, uh, that's just something that you want to make sure you have access to. Okay. Gotcha. And then you guys, I think you already answered this. If you're credentialed at multiple hospitals, like six hospitals, and you will only ever operate at three, you still need to get all the information for those people or just get rid of those credentials. Well, it, even if you get rid of the credentials, we still need to know about any place that you've had privileges during that time period. We need to know about and we need information from. So, okay. yeah. So, yeah, all, we need all, all those hospitals. I mean, I, right. You can understand uh, maybe it probably doesn't apply to anyone who's on the call. But if you get privileges at a hospital, misbehave, get rid of those privileges. Actually, that's information that the board would probably want to know or you would want us to know that about your colleague who did that. And so that's why we need uh, need information from all of the hospitals, whether you operated there or not. Gotcha. Makes sense. Thank you. Dr. Dorman. Yes. Uh, quick question. Um, so I was granted temporary privileges um, and admitting hospital um, in August. And uh, um, that wasn't like finalized until mid-December. Um, I was like being proctored and stuff like that. But um, I assume that, you know, even though I had temporary privileges as the still adequate for the November 1st deadline, you don't have like permanent privileges at the hospital or credentialing until December. Those temporary sense. privileges will count. Okay. When, they get, when you get your letter, they need to include that information on that letter. Okay. You perfect. Thank temporary you. privileges in August. Yeah. It was just under review until like December 3rd yes. or something like that. So, okay. Perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Dr. Clark. Hi, thank you for the information. So um, I am an employed doc, so I work in a Kaiser, and I'm trying to figure out with the familiarity for peer review questions in particular, um, my how, how familiar, how do we define familiarity with my practice, given that I have a captured audience and I can't really have other people treat my patients because of insurance reasons and things like that? What is the process and protocol around that, and how do I make sure that those five zip code-based peers can actually be adequate? Uh, so 
the the zip code is separate and we take care of that. So that's not something that you, you need to worry about. We take a zip code concentric circle around your practice and we'll send peer review to individuals in that in that per, in that particular concentric circle. You're probably talking about the five diplomates that you'll need to choose off the list. And you just need to choose individuals that you think may be familiar with your practice. Uh, and, and so those are individuals who practice in the same area, uh, in the same geographic area, that sort of thing. So uh, um, that that's where they should come from. And um, at, you don't have to refer patients to them. They don't have to refer patients to you. You don't have to uh, share uh, necessarily patients. Um, and if you go through the application, I think that'll be pretty clear. Okay. Thank you. And we have time just for a couple questions. We'll go with uh, Dr. Quinlan. Hey, yeah, thank you for uh, answering all our questions tonight. Um, mine should be pretty quick, but you'd mentioned the informed consent for the 12 cases um, that we pick, uh, that are picked for us. Um, should the unfortunate circumstances occur that those patients are deceased um, by the time we're sitting for the boards, should we are we expected to reach out to the family for that informed consent or what's that process so i, I so i guess that this is not clear that that was on the tip slide one of the focuses of the examination is in for the informed consent process so when you operate on a patient you need to have informed consent so that is that process and Generally, I, I don't know of an institution that doesn't have an informed consent form that the patient signs saying, I understand the surgery and I agree to proceed. That's the form we're talking about. That's a sticking point and very often something that's missed in the upload process. So when someone said, what are tips? That's one of the tips. The informed consent, that's your informed consent process. So there, if, if a patient is deceased, you still have an informed consent based on the surgery that was performed. So that's what that refers to. There's no additional informed consent. It's the informed consent that you obtain as part of your practice to operate on the patient. So that that's what we're referring to there. I'm sorry, I must have been unclear on that. No, I, I understand. I just want to make sure there wasn't, I guess, additional uh, permission to share the information to speak about the patient more from a medical release standpoint uh, in terms of discussing the case with other providers that are not necessarily um, involved in that patient's care. Uh, no. So, so then when you're uploading the cases, then you will uh, remove some of the PHI and you will also sign a business associate agreement that covers uh, us to evaluate your cases. So that's not a problem. You actually, there at the time that you get the um, 12 selected cases, that'll be explained, but you can get permission from the patients not to uh, to submit the records without de-identifying them. So that, that's, that will come once you get the 12 selected cases, not something you have to worry about now. Understood. Thank you. We'll go with one final question. I know there's still some people with their hands up. Definitely reach out to uh, ABUS tomorrow, phones, emails, Denise and the, all the staff. We're happy to answer the questions. So we'll go with uh, Dr. Uh, Albanese with the last question. 
Oop, did I just... I might have just uh, logged her off. Hold on. Wait. There she... There we go, Dr. Albanese. Dr. Albanese, do you hear us? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, I'm so sorry about that. Thank you for taking my question. Uh, this is regarding uh, the July 2025 date to sit for the actual exam. Um, for anyone who you know has health issues, you know pregnancy related issues, um, you know peripartum, you're um, in that period. Um, in terms of getting our date, is that flexible at all? Will there be multiple dates to test, or how is that being addressed currently? Uh, so generally, the oral exam is given in the third week of July. Uh, this year, we did have an alternate date examination in October uh, for individuals with life events. Uh, we would anticipate uh, that we would take care of people who had uh, life events around the time of the examination in July, uh, both in 2024 and in 2025. But we don't have details uh, about that uh, yet, but uh, I would presume that we would um, take care of individuals with a, an alternate date in those years as well. Keep in mind that doesn't change any of the deadlines that we talked about. So the the deadline for getting your case list in, the case collection period, the when you receive the 12 selected cases, when the upload needs to be done, all of that will remain the same. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, so uh, hopefully we answered most of the questions. Uh, if you do have questions, please don't hesitate to call uh, the ABOS office and we'll get you hooked up with your certification specialist or I'm, I'm happy to take uh, phone calls and answer questions as well. We really appreciate your attention, appreciate your being uh, here for the process. And again, if questions come up along the way, it's far easier to answer those earlier as opposed to later. So please don't hesitate to call us and get a question answered before you run too far down the field uh, in the wrong direction. Again, thank you very much for your attention. Uh, we'll sign off, but uh, we're uh, here to answer your questions and hopefully uh, work through this process with you. Take care yes. and good night. And this will be uh, online tomorrow to our website, YouTube, and the podcast.